All right, let's turn to Proverbs 10 together tonight. Proverbs chapter number 10. And tonight we're going to begin considering a subject or a thought of family things. Family things. And I'll kind of give an introduction to that tonight and kind of why we're going to follow that as a subject for the next few weeks. Uh, You'll notice with me in Proverbs 10, we're going to read down through verse number 7. Uh, there is no intention tonight of getting through these seven verses, and, uh, but these are the seven verses we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of weeks. But I want us to read these seven verses tonight. We're going to give us the, the background and the context and the setting of where we're going uh, concerning this subject of family things. Beginning there in verse 1 of Proverbs 10, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, But he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. Blessings are upon the head of the just, but violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Beginning in Proverbs 10, really all the way to Proverbs 22, verse 16, This section begins a series of mainly what are referred to as single-sentence proverbs. The single-sentence proverbs are intended to teach those who we've learned over the previous nine chapters, those who have embraced wisdom, or as we've learned, those who are in Christ, as Christ is wisdom. But what this does is this takes what we've learned in those first nine chapters and begins to even more practically apply it into our everyday lives to live out wisdom in this life. Now, it's interesting that the unity of this section begins by the mark of the heading that's found the very first phrase in verse one, the Proverbs of Solomon. Now, what's interesting is that's the very same beginning that the book had. Proverbs 1.1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon. So it's peculiar here that we have the same heading, and yet there is a kind of a difference in the tone in which the book of Proverbs takes from this point on out. Now, what this is not, there's nothing to suggest that what we're seeing happening here is that this is different or that we should somehow disregard what we've already learned in chapters 1 through 9, it's, it's announcing to us that now what we're going to learn is the same principles and concepts, but they're going to take on different forms. In other words, it doesn't read exactly the same as what we've read prior. Now, it's, it's pretty fascinating when you actually begin to look through this and realize it really does take a little bit different of a turn. All right. So what we see here, beginning in chapter 10 through chapter 22, is we see that observations that Solomon is making and expressions that he is stating are, uh, they, are they are things that are stated in categories. Uh, they're stated with something that 
the observations and the expressions cover almost every conceivable situation. In other words, they're covering almost any, anything that happens in life, you can find it. And so uh, we see that there's often great value in that. This is building off of some suppositions we've already made. Uh, all the way back when we began our series in Proverbs, all the way back in Proverbs 1-7, remember the key verse of the entirety of the book is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the assumption here is that those who are reading this, we are building upon what God has already revealed to us. In other words, we're reading this as people who know wisdom because we are people who know Christ. God's people, we learn how to discern what's true and what is false. We learn how to discern what's right and what's wrong. Uh, it is, it is relationship-oriented. Uh, you find more relationship expressions and observations between chapter 10 and chapter 22 than you do in the first nine chapters. And again, yes, we saw relationships. And remember, we saw a lot about the strange woman and we, and we saw about those types of things. But the relationships now start to get a little bit more personal. And so we see an introduction really here with, in verse 1, we see a reference to a son, we see a reference to a father, and we see a reference to a mother. So the wisdom of Proverbs is in, is in fact this. What it's teaching us to do is to look at human life through the Word of God. And so all of the affairs of life can be viewed through the Word of God. So there is not a situation you and I are going to face in our life that we cannot find the answer to. Many of the life's answers are actually found in Proverbs. Now, the, we take the Bible as a whole, we take the Bible in its totality, but the Proverbs are those things that we, they're, they're familiar in our society. Uh, unbelievers actually use some of these expressions. They have, they have taken hold in our society that people say things and they say, oh, that's just an expression that's been around for years. The expression, the observation actually came from the Proverbs. Even non-believers use the expressions. So as an overview of chapter 10, we break this down now one step a little bit further. The chapter divisions, remember, those were added by translators. When you see chapter divisions, those are translators that put those in there and there is, uh, the, the, Proverbs especially, they seem arbitrary. It seems like there's, there's a thought going along and then all of a sudden it stops and there's a chapter break and it jumps onto the next chapter. And so this is important because sometimes we, we lose sight of the context. And we think, oh, there's a chapter break. So we, we could disregard what was just said, was spoken previously. So what you see here is these chapter breaks also introduce us to different themes, different structures. Now, what's interesting is between chapters 10 and chapter 15, there's what's called a contrast of opposites. In other words, we have on one side, here's, here's this one, and then the opposite is mentioned. It's a comparison. It's a compare and contrast. It's, 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 what, it's what English people would say. It's a literary device. 
And so it contrasts pairs such as righteous versus wicked, wise versus fool. Certain sentences are grouped together according to a theme and according to a particular form. But then we have what we see throughout the book of Proverbs, a bunch of independent sayings. Some things don't go together. Each sentence sometimes is based upon the society of the time, based upon the setting, based upon the aim of the writer, who, of course, was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some of the sayings are separated out to provide the guideline. Now, again, I don't want to bore you with all that, but it's important that we establish that. So, but let's remember this. Through the entirety of the Proverbs, all right, through the entirety of the Proverbs, we should look beyond the first sense and remember that we need to find Christ in it. Christ who is wisdom. The wisdom that is so often spoken about in this book. So you see there in your handout, you have Roman numeral number one there. And we're going to deal tonight and beginning with the concepts of wisdom and life. Wisdom and life. And when we talk about family, we talk about family things. We're not talking about things that are just applicable to the family. But we're talking about things that will have a, a direct bearing on family life. So if you look at those four Roman numerals as we go through these seven verses over the next couple of weeks, wisdom and life, wealth and loss, work and laziness, wickedness and law. These are things that are part of family life. They're family things. Now again, they're not just exclusive to family, but they, are, they seem to have a representation of what family life really is. So... What we've been reading up to this point have, have been introductory statements. They've been things to begin so that we would understand what wisdom really is and how wisdom is carried out in our life, how there's a profit, how there's an advantage to living out in our life. It gives us directions. It gives us directions and then also how to apply them, how to receive them. But yet we've got to remember some of these things, they're independent of each other. So let's notice this. As we think about this from family perspective or family things, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. So we see here that a wise son, the effect is, he makes a glad father. But on the very opposite side of that, a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. So we see the, the wise son has an effect of producing gladness. The foolish son has the effect of creating heaviness. Now, Solomon, remember, as he's writing from under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon's father was David. So if you begin to put this into some perspective, uh, Solomon maybe have been able to say at that point that he had made his father glad. Uh, there was appearances of Solomon's wisdom before he ever took, the throne of, ever took the throne of his father. But yet, Solomon is a picture of who made his father rejoice. 
But yet it's also the principle here of a wise son makes his father glad. But a foolish son is heaviness. What do we talk about when we talk about heaviness? How does a foolish son bring heaviness? Heaviness is a word that describes grief. It represents trouble. You have on the one side, a wise son brings gladness, but a foolish son brings grief. Now, all of Solomon's um, children were not wise. Solomon knew what it was to actually have a son that was not wise. He had a son by the name of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the fifth and the last king of the kingdom of Israel, but the first king of the kingdom of Judah. The son of Solomon, he was, he was successor to Solomon, and he was a grandson of David. But if you read about Rehoboam, Rehoboam was not a wise son. He was a, he was a wicked king. He was a foolish son. So here you have an example of a son who was the, the son of, of Solomon, the son, the wisest man who's, who's ever to have lived, and yet he brought grief. He brought heaviness to his mother. Now, let's make something clear about this. This doesn't mean that a wise son only makes a father glad. It's, it's implied that a wise son makes a, makes a father and a mother glad. On the same token, a foolish son isn't just the heaviness of a mother, it's also the heaviness of a father. And any of us who are parents, we understand that. And as parents, we know that our children and how our children act and how our children are has a direct effect on our, on our countenance. Uh, there are stories throughout history and even throughout those who've been in church all their life that have a testimony of my son or my daughter was not wise. My son and my daughter sadly became heavy. They brought grief. When we think about family life, and one of the things that we realize the, when we're, our children start off very young, and I'm, I'm going to add a lot of like just some things and observations in my own life that it's not like purely biblical exposition, and I think, I think you'll give me that liberty, but when we start off with our families and when our children are very, very young, uh, there's not a parent on the, on the planet that doesn't want their child to grow up to grow in the admonition, the nurture of the Lord, to make wise decisions, to make wise choices. And so that one day we, we turn our children loose and our children, uh, they, they have been raised right, they've been taught right, and they go on their own and they live wise lives. And I can remember when our children were very small, that was what we prayed for, that's what we wanted. And when we set off and you attempt to raise your children in order that that's what's produced. But at some point, at some point, those, those children begin to make their own decisions and they make their own choices. And those choices and those decisions, no matter if they're in the home or out of the home, still affect mom and dad. So even a child that moves out and is on their own, their decisions still affect mom and dad. There are stories of parents who raised their children and while their children were at home, they were, they were, they were uh, very wise in their actions, wise in what they did. But as soon as they got on their own, 
Suddenly, they became, uh, it became very heavy. So as we think about family things, and we think about family life, uh, in, the, in the way God ordained this to be, and again, we live in a society today that uh, the, the family that we know, the family that you and I, many of us grew up with, the family that we identify with, a mom and a dad and the children, uh, those, th- those are becoming fewer and farther between. But yet, every child and every parent wants their children to be raised and, and raised in the admonition and the nurture of the Lord. The effects of what parents do on their, does have an effect on their children. How we raise them, what we choose to do, how, what we, how we choose to, to even down to how parents discipline their children. But all of it has to be done through wisdom. And so you can see the effects. A wise son is going to affect a home and is going to make it a glad place. But a foolish son is going to make the home a burdensome, grievous place. You know what's amazing to me is we often say how often parents can control the tone of a home. Children, even very small children, can control the tone of a home. But as they get older, sometimes the actions or the activities of that child affect the entirety of the house, the family, completely. And so a foolish son doesn't just cause grief to himself, just like it shows us here. He causes grief to his mother, causes grief to his father. And why is the grief mentioned to them? Because a, a child's action is more, has more of an effect on the parents than anybody else. Foolish behavior by a child has more of an effect on the parents than anybody else. So you see this, joy and sorrow. A wise son can bring joy, brings gladness. Foolish son brings grief. So this text is not just about how, what parents do but how children conduct themselves as well. Now, there's, a, there's an age. There's an age that children are not fully aware of this, right? <laughs> they don't have the capacity to understand. Um, our youngest here tonight have no idea about what we're talking about. They don't have the capacity to understand I'm, I'm being foolish or I'm being wise right now. They have no concept of that. But there comes a place in an age when the child becomes old enough to know exactly what they're doing. And so they have responsibilities. They have responsibility to be wise. They have responsibility to not be foolish. So children are taught just as much here about being on guard about their own conduct towards their parents. Why? Because the very joy and our grief is influenced by our children's conduct as much as it is by the parents' conduct. 
Now, there are, there are commentators that, that take this one step further, and I don't, I don't disagree with this at all. I think, there, I think there's there, the concepts and the principles we've been learning through the Proverbs, but they interpret this, this statement about the father and the mother they interpret the father as being God the father and they interpret the mother as being the church and the sons being the children of God. And what he's describing here is he's describing that those who are wise are the ones who are the followers of Christ and those who are the, the foolish are those who are not followers of Christ. So which one is wise? The ones who follow Christ. Which one is foolish? the ones who do not follow Christ. So we have this picture here. It's fair to say tonight that much of a parent's earthly sorrow or joy revolves around the moral and spiritual conduct of their children. How their kids act is a direct reflection on a parent's joy or sorrow in this life. Now, as young children, when we disobey our parents and we go our own way, I don't think it crosses a child's mind at a certain age that I'm affecting my parents' happiness, my parents' gladness, my parents' joy. But there are also, there's people in this room, including myself, knew at a time in my life when I intentionally knew what I was doing and knew what my actions and pretty much knew what the result of my action would be. In other words, I knew exactly if I was being wise or being foolish. Now, I've watched, I've watched enough parents over the years not to be a parental expert, but I've watched parents try to teach a child who's way too young to even, even grab that concept yet, okay? There's a difference in being very small when a child doesn't know the difference, and a child that's 13, 14 years old, there's a huge difference. Okay, so when you've got a child who's very, very young, that child is, everything about them is being framed. Okay, what you discipline, what you don't discipline, and, and either way, again, I'll, I may say things as a parent that you disagree with, that's okay, but you can over-discipline at a very small age because a child has no clue what you're disciplining them for. I've watched parents talk to kids who can barely understand what mom and dad is saying and trying to correct them. They're too young to fully get it. But I've seen the same mistake happen when a 13 and 14 year old who knew exactly what they were doing, where the parent was not being disciplined enough. The child was being allowed to get away with way too many things. And again, I'm not sure this will give the intent of this message. I told you I'm going off on a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, but that's the idea. So we're talking about a foolish son and a wise son. These are children that can be held accountable for their actions, okay? This is not a newborn, okay? You can't call a newborn baby a foolish son or a wise son. They have no, they have no capability of doing that. But it's interesting that throughout Scripture and even throughout just the Proverbs, I'm going to give you some references tonight just through the Proverbs of the direct effect that a child has on the parents. So we're there in Proverbs 10. Go to Proverbs 15, verse 20. Proverbs 15, verse 20. Now this, this reads similar to what we just read in our text, but it's a little bit different. Now this is found in a section, okay? 
This is found in a section between verse 18 and verse 22 that the main instruction is be slow to anger. Okay, that's a family life issue, right? Be slow to anger. But here's what it says in verse 20. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man, now notice the wording's different, despiseth his mother. Okay, then you see what's you see what's happening there. There's a similarity between the, the wise son making a glad father, but the foolish man despiseth his mother. Now that's a, that's a that that is an extremely strong word that's being used there. That word despise it, it, it means to discount or to to throw off. In other words, to throw away the instruction or the guidance or the leader of the mother, the mother's instructions. Now, again, you can't take this to say that doesn't happen with a father and vice versa, okay? A wise son makes a glad mother as well, but a a foolish man despises his mother and he despises his father. The principle here is, is there's that principle of wise and foolish, Go over to Proverbs 17, verses 21 and 25. Now, verse 21 appears in a section between verse 17 and verse 23 that deals with friendship. And that friends, and we all know that we know the verse that a friend loveth at all times in verse 17. So it's in that, it's in that phrase, or it's in that, that, that section. But here's what it says in verse uh, 21. He that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of of a fool hath no joy. Now, this kind of spins it back and says, he that begets a fool. Now, it goes back to the parent and says, the parent that begets a fool does it to his own sorrow. And the father of a fool hath no joy. So a parent that begets a fool receives sorrow. In other words, what he produces is what comes back. Drop down to verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. Well, who's the her? That's the mother. See, family things. Yet, Foolish son is at the heart of this. Again, this doesn't mean daughters can't be foolish, but this is the idea of what's happening here. We see how much of a parent's earthly sorrow or joy revolves around the conduct of their children. Proverbs 19, verse 26. It says this, This is in a section dealing with the counsel of the Lord. He that wasteth his father and chaseth away his mother is a son that causeth shame and bringeth reproach. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. The idea here is, is that child is getting instruction that is counter- to the instruction of parents, wise parents, okay? Again, you're seeing how everything affects 
one another. And then Proverbs 23, verses 15 through 16. Now, this is in the section of the correction of a child. And there's controversy in this section because this is the section that contains, in verse 13, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. There have been many wrong interpretations as to what that means, and, there, that, and that's not the point of tonight, okay? But, but it's in that section, okay? And if you notice what it says there in Proverbs uh, 23, verses 15 and 16, my son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Yea, my reign shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. This, this parent, when a wise child is living wisely, speaking wisely, causes the father, the mother to rejoice. When they're living like a fool, it causes them to sorrow. I know parents that say, just let children make their own decisions and choose their own way. It'll eventually all come out right. That's not wise. <laughs> that is not wise. They're not going to turn out right. You see, as parents, we've been given the responsibility to discipline our children, correct our children, to make sure that they're being raised in the admonition, especially those who know wisdom and know Christ. You are obligated to raise your children in a godly environment. And to make the mistake of thinking that a child that's allowed to do what they want to do will turn out all right. Because even children who are raised in, a, in a, an environment that is godly and Christ-centered, they don't always turn out right. It doesn't happen all the time. It just doesn't happen. But yet, the principles are there, and you see how they affect the entire tone. And then Proverbs 28, 7. Proverbs 28, 7. In the section of the company that a son keeps. His friends. Verse 7. Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that is a companion of riotous men shameth his father. You see that child that says, it doesn't matter who I hang out with. Oh, yes, it does. It matters immensely who your children hang out with. And I'm not just talking about little children. I'm talking about even your adult children who are living in your home. They, they ought to have companions of people that, in, that, that edify them in the things of the Lord, not take them away from it. So you see there's a connection between these family things. It, it, these all relate one to another. And then Proverbs 29.3. And this is, this is what we've been talking about for the last number of weeks. Whoso loveth wisdom rejoiceth his father, but he that keepeth company with harlots spendeth his substance. We've studied a lot about the harlot over the last month or so. And you see that all of these things, the son's actions, affect 
the parent. So all of these things are tied together. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because if we go too far, we're going to get, we're going to get into too deep where we're not going to be able to, to pull this all the way apart. But I want to go just to the second verse here. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. Now, we've gone from talking about the wisdom of a son, the foolishness of a son, to what could appear to be another one of those independent statements that's standing on its own, but really it's all connected. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing. Now, treasures of wickedness is a, it's, it's, a, it's an illustration of things that are acquired by wicked means. Or in other words, things that are gotten in a false manner. Over in Proverbs 11.4, probably just across the page for you maybe, or turning the page, it says, Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. So treasures of wickedness refer to anything that has been acquired by wicked ways, wicked means. And what does it say about that? It says that those treasures profit nothing. Okay, they have, they have no value. In other words, the people who possess things that are treasures as a result of wickedness produce no profit at all. Now, that's why that's in the section about wealth and loss, because it is, it is a part of every family. Every family experiences wealth and loss. But he says, if you get these gains by wicked means... No matter how much you acquire, they will profit you nothing. There are, there are families, there are husbands and fathers who have, who have gotten things because they thought, I got to do anything I can to provide riches for my family. And sometimes that means they have even occupations that lead them to acquire riches by wickedness. So the home seems like it's prospering because they've acquired riches, but yet God's Word says that those types of treasures, they actually profit you nothing. And then there's another one of those statements, but righteousness delivereth from death. Some people in their life begin to understand and begin to believe that riches, having riches, are the things that are going to save me from the trouble that I may have in this life. Do you know it is true that people put their trust in riches? They think it spares me from trouble. It spares me from trial. And some people even believe it might even spare me from death. But you know, riches do not give you one second or one minute more of life. There's still an appointment with death that is coming. And the home and the family that says, listen, I'm going to get riches no matter what it takes is only bringing harm to themselves. 
What's interesting is people believe almost in a kind of a strange form of, if I can just acquire riches, then I can somehow redeem myself from trouble in this life. But you realize that no, no amount of riches can deliver from trouble in this life. But then he makes this interesting statement. And again, all seven of these verses, the two thoughts are connected with the connecting word, but in them. If you look at all seven of those verses, every one of them, it, it says, treasure wickedness, profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. The very next verse, the Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. That's kind of the dividing line between the two thoughts. The wise way and the foolish way. Those, that righteousness there delivereth from death. There's really, it's got, it's got two meanings here. It's got a meaning of physically or in this world, but also from a spiritual perspective. It is righteousness that delivers from death. From the physical standpoint, riches that are gotten righteously or in a proper manner are the means of preserving life. They are the means in which keeps us from famishing. The reason that God equips us the ability to go out and to work jobs is so that you and I can provide for our family. It is good for a man to work. A man that doesn't work shouldn't eat. But those things... A man can acquire all these goods for his, he can do it rightfully, he can do it honestly, he can do it with an integrity. But those things don't merit him eternal life. In other words, just because he's an honest man in this life doesn't mean he earns eternal life. There are people out in homes around this church who are earning an honest living. They're going to jobs that are, they are on, it's an honest day's work. They're providing for their family. They are putting food on the table. And yet, those good things do not deliver a man from eternal death. A man can be honest and yet not be in Christ. Okay, so I understand that it's, it's the idea here that he's not telling us that, look, if you just acquire these riches by honest means, no, it, there's a, that's where this twofold meaning is. Because if you dive a little bit deeper into this, you realize that although a man cannot earn or merit eternal life, do you realize that unbelieving man who is earning or woman, if it's a dual, whatever the situation is, they're doing it honestly. They're still the recipients of God's undeserved grace. They're still getting God's grace in their life. They're being provided for. Yet that doesn't merit eternal life. So he's not telling, that, telling us that this will deliver them from eternal or spiritual death. So we have to look at this righteousness also from a legal standpoint as far as spirituality. Righteousness, as we learn throughout Scripture, even obedience to the law can never deliver a person from the sentence of death. It's imperfect. It cannot justify. It cannot save. But there is a spiritual righteousness that comes. This righteousness that is delivered by God, it is 
given by Christ makes that person a new man. He's created in the righteousness of God. He's created in the righteousness of Christ. And that, in fact, does deliver a man from spiritual death. This righteousness, which we, we know, it's an imputed righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's been given to them. We are now justified by that righteousness. But here's the truth. Even though we have the righteousness of Christ, spiritual righteousness, that does not deliver us from an earthly bodily death. In other words, even all of us who are in Christ, who are raising honest families, we're learning, earning a living honestly, Christ's righteousness spiritually does not deliver us from an earthly death. So when we think about these things, what does it do? Death, we know, is still coming, but it removes the sting and the curse of it. In other words, now I'm no longer going to face a punishment for my sin. I've been delivered from the death because I couldn't keep the law. The law can no longer condemn me. So they say, how do you tie all this together? Well, we understand that verse alone tells us that any kind of wealth or riches that are acquired by men unjustly will do them absolutely no good because eventually, what's the Bible say? It will profit nothing. Eventually, God will take that away. When profit and loss comes, the profit that's gained by the treasure of darkness will never offset the loss because of the wickedness. In other words, no matter how much treasure is acquired, it'll never be enough to offset the loss of the wicked part of it. In Matthew 16, verse 26, there's a, there's a very simple principle here, simple in the, in, the, in the manner of how we're thinking about this. But when Jesus said this, He said, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, there are people today who are doing that very thing. They're exchanging the riches of this world for their soul. And folks, the most dangerous ones are the ones that are doing it. I, in some ways, they're doing it honestly. They're doing it rightly, but they're doing it apart from Christ. You see, Christ is the very essence of everything that we do, of our families, of our homes, of our parenting. And it's not just about being good parents. It's about having the wisdom of Christ. I mean, if you, were to, if you were just to put this on a very superficial level, and I know that the, the theo theology in this will get a little bit convoluted, from a parenting standpoint, as far as treating their children well and treating them respectfully and even disciplining, there are good parents out there by the world that says those are good parents, but they're not in Christ. So here's my point. 
You can raise a child in that complete, in that complete environment as a, as a, a good parent. But if you don't raise them in Christ, it will amount to nothing. There's such a principle there. There are people in this world who think, I'm raising my family right, and we're honest, and we're good people, and we're moral people, but yet they're void of Christ. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the key to a wise child is Christ. So next week, what we'll do is we'll get into verse number three, and the outline is going to be pretty much the same. We're going to continue to talk about this wealth and loss. We'll get into verse number three. And again, this, this section is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be that, uh, that pure verse by verse, expound it, expound it. I'm going to try to make a lot of applications as to things that relate to family things. All right? So as we think about that for next week, let's just remember those two principles. Number one, that a child... A child's conduct affects the moral and spiritual nature of a parent, their sorrow or their joy, and that the most important principle for a home is Christ. Okay? Seems simple, seems profound, but that's very, very important that we keep those things in mind. Okay? All right, let's go ahead and stand, and I'll go ahead and finish with our reading from the Valley of Vision. If you'd like to follow along, you can go ahead and stand. Page 196 simply entitled Faith and the World. And there is some principles directly related to what we just spoke a little bit about tonight. It says, O Lord, the world is artful to entrap, approaches in fascinating guise, extends many a gilded bait, presents many a charming face. Let my faith scan every painted Bible and escape every bewitching snare in a victory that overcomes all things. In my duties, give me firmness, energy, zeal, devotion to thy cause, courage in thy name, love as a working grace. And all commensurate with my trust. Let faith stride forth in giant power and love respond with energy in every act. I often mourn the absence of my beloved Lord, whose smile makes earth a paradise, whose voice is sweetest music, whose presence gives all graces strength. But by unbelief, I often keep him outside my door. Let faith give entrance that he may abide with me forever. Thy word is full of promises, flowers of sweet fragrance, fruit of refreshing flavor when called by faith. May I be made rich in its riches, be strong in its power, be happy in its joy, abide in its sweetness, feast on its preciousness, draw vigor from its manna. Lord, increase my faith. Father, as we bring this time to a close tonight, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you even in the simple practicality of it. And Lord, we realize that the word of God is not only beneficial for our spiritual life, it shows us Christ, it shows us the gospel. But Lord, it's also practical for our day-to-day life and how we live, what our homes look like, how we are as parents, how we conduct ourselves as children. 
Lord, I pray that you'll teach us through your word. And Lord, that as we learn these principles and continue to uh, be settled in these, the Proverbs, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, there are, there are difficult passages. There are difficult sayings. But Lord, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, we would have understanding and we would make the application. Lord, thank you for giving us this night together. Go with us now as we go our separate ways. And Lord, bring us back this coming Lord's Day, ready to worship together the living God. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and glory and praise for it. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen.